in you and not just sing about it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. Um, thank you for having me tonight. Um, great to be here with you. Great to meet Henry for the first time, um, but great to meet, great to see many people I know already, and if I've not met you, um, good to see you um, tonight. I'm going to be taking us to Psalm 27 in just a moment, um, just to let you know we're very much praying for you as a church over at Gunnersbury as you um, have said goodbye to John and Joe and are seeking a new pastor. We're aware of just the importance of that, so we're in prayer with you on that. But do turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Um, I don't know if you've, you've got a page number. There you go. Well, it's 460 in my Bible. That presume that's yours as well. That's correct, is it? Jolly good. Psalm 140. Sorry, Psalm 27. Get myself completely confused there. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all round me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we um, thank you for this part of your word. Thank you that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Father, help us to come to your word as it is of such value. And please would you 
um, do your work in speaking to us and changing us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is somebody with confidence in life. Confidence not because he's worked out how to do away with problems in, in his life, but because actually he's got a bigger picture in which to place his problems. His faith is still clearly being tested and tried, but it's not shaken. And perhaps if you, if you read this psalm, more, most importantly, he is not defined by fear, is he? There's a real message for our age here. Are people getting more strong and stable and able to withstand the storms? Do you feel like you're getting like that? There's uncertainty and worry everywhere, outside and within. We look on his confidence, we realize this is something that we need as well. And hearing God's word, we see a man who from his own personal experience is able to show us the confidence that he has in a scary world. And what he's really doing, I think, is to invite us to the source of that confidence. It's the Lord. So notice the first two words after of David. It's the Lord is my light and my salvation. Notice what the last two words are in the whole psalm. The Lord. Eleven further times. It's about the Lord. That's where he's pointing us to. Just a word about reading the Psalms this side of Jesus. My assumption is that we understand them best when we know that, first of all, they're his Psalms. They're the Psalms of the, the suffering servant. Like David, Jesus is the anointed one, the truly anointed one, the eternally anointed one. And he's also fully man. He's able to pray these Psalms from the depths as well, particularly in his manhood on earth. And so when we see these psalms as his, first of all, we grasp them better for ourselves. We'll, we'll come back to that. But he starts off by describing, first of all, his glorious refuge in the Lord. His refuge in the Lord, we're in verses 1 to 3, first of all. He starts by stating an objective truth. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. This fact is so true, he says, so significant that it removes all fear from me. Because the Lord is this, whom shall I fear? Because the Lord is the stronghold of whom shall I be afraid? So here is truth that he recognizes affects life and all of his thinking right now. And I don't think that that, he, that means he never trembles at anything. But rather, when he looks at the big picture, when he looks at his loving, guiding, all-powerful God who acts for him, fear can't hang around forever with him. This feels like one of those psalms where he's very much preaching to himself. I think certainly by the end, it feels like that. And it's a great psalm for us to be taking and preaching to ourselves. God is my light, he says. God is my salvation. God is my stronghold. He 
don't know what you think the world's answers are to feeling afraid or how to survive in a scary world. There are plenty of reasons to fear, aren't there? I don't know what your reasons would be. Fear that the future doesn't quite go as planned. Fear that something will swoop into my life and carry off something that I love most of all. Or someone whom I love most of all. Fear of another pandemic. Fear of war, which is there in verse 3. Fear of what the doctor will tell me when I go for that appointment next week. What is the world's answer to these fears? Um, what are we encouraged to do? We're generally, temp- we're generally called to sort of look around and find someone to place our confidence in. Someone who's got a new message. Often it's ourselves. Find the strength within. Be the, the me that I'm supposed to be. The answer is self-confidence. And it always comes a cropper because it's not based in reality. I am not my own light. I'm not my own salvation. I am not my own stronghold. And God says, no. The answer lies in who I am. And this psalm is, is really striking in that the action of man is really in the background. The only action really is responsive action. So for example, verse 8, seek my face, my heart says, I, I do seek your face. Responding to God. It's God's action that is at the heart of this psalm. And as we've seen, it's his name that appears so much. So this is a psalm really for today as much as ever, isn't it? For a scary world. It shows us how to find a heart at rest genuinely because of God. To have that rest that enables the believer to say, the Lord is my light. It's the language of testimony. It's not just a theoretical thing. He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. It's that language that you can share as well and make personal. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So first of all, there's the refuge that the psalmist talks about. But it's not enough to simply to have fears removed. The Bible's message about, is about relationship restored. So he moves from refuge in the Lord, in verses 1 to 3, to relationship with the Lord, in verses 4 to 6. So you can see, even in the structure, you've got couplets in verses 1 to 3, and then verse 4, it's, it's longer, it's a triplet. Something different is happening. And here, actually, we see his heart, and we see his heart for God. It's an extraordinary prayer, and I invite you to look at verse 4. Bring your own heart to it. It's quite humbling, I think. Look at what he says. One thing, this is his priority, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So the psalmist knows that he has salvation in God and he knows that he's also most blessed in the presence of God. God is not just someone to grab stuff from. He is someone to be with most of all. It sounds obvious, but it's a jump we don't always make, isn't it? We're like the prodigal son. We take the stuff that God gives to us. We think that's what it's all about. 
We forget that the Savior himself is the sun in the center of the universe, the most beautiful concentration of goodness. A Christian is not just someone saved by God, but saved to get to know God. We need to remember this all the time, don't we? If you've been a Christian and you're here tonight, you've been a Christian decades, you need that reminder again. You're not just saved to be someone who does stuff for him, to be his servant. You're saved to be his son in communion with him, in relationship with him. And in case you're thinking, oh, that's, this is a future thing, isn't it? Verse 4, it sounds like um, heaven. He's talking about that, dwelling in the house of the Lord. Surely that must be heaven. Well, actually, no, I think it's really clear. He's talking about all the days of my life. He's talking about communion with God now, in this life. Hardly seems possible, does it, knowing what this life is like? But no, he's saying, no, this relationship starts day one of being a Christian. There's this language about God's house and temple um, in this verse. So in David's day, of course, you had the tabernacle that was built where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was no temple as yet. That was a physical place where God met with his people. But that's not what David has in mind here. It's pretty clear, I think, that he's got a bigger idea in mind. He's not just talking about being a, a loiterer in the tabernacle. I mean, he was a man of action. He had responsibilities. And in fact, the king could never go into the tabernacle. That was the role of the priests. He's talking instead about something bigger, something more constant, a communion that exists all the time, wherever he is, in his palace, amongst his people, in his judgments, even out on, com on campaign with the army, I take it, he sought the presence of God wherever he was. I take it his heart is very much like Mary's as she knelt at Jesus' feet and she just wanted that one thing that Jesus said was the, the better portion. Martha was busy in the background and Jesus highlighted this desire to sit at Jesus' feet. The psalmist has realized that no other relationship can be a substitute for this one, for the relationship with his God, with his Savior. Somebody died at the end of July, Sinead O'Connor, you may have seen that in the news. Um, if you were listening to music in the late 80s and early 90s, then you'll have been aware of that song that she made famous, Nothing Compares to You, you know, with the two and the you spelt like that, which just seems so with it back in the 90s. Um, and that song expressed the fact that without you, whoever that was, life was intolerable. Since you've been gone, I'm quoting, since you've been gone, I can do whatever I want. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Well, hold on, let's see. I can see whomever I choose. I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant. But nothing, I said nothing can take away these blues because nothing compares to you. So you kind of get a feel at first that, oh, being disattached from this person has got its benefits. Initially, it can feel like that, can't it? Rebelling from God and walking away from him. But actually, it proves ultimately to be intolerable. She even sings, I could put my arms around every boy I see, but they'd only remind me of you. There's a little voice in us that says, oh, life would be simpler without God. I'd 
I could do whatever I want. I mean, you can go to a fancy restaurant when you're a Christian as well, okay? Do all of that. But there's a false sense of a freedom. Those things are true. I can do whatever I want for a time and to your hurt, but no relationship matches this one. No relationship can be a substitute standing for this one. If you're recently married, your new spouse is not a substitute for the God of verse 4. Nothing compares to him. This is the one constant thing the Lord calls his people to. I would just want to encourage you tonight, if you're a, a believer, to press on into this, because I think we look at that and think, mm, maybe one day, maybe when I'm in heaven, that thing will start to feel real, that relationship. But life is too messy for this to seem even a vague possibility now. It can't be in the Bible because, uh, and, and not be possible. What God presents to us and offers us, he also really gives to us and makes possible. This idea of constant communion with him. We know that the desire in our own hearts can seem so small for it, don't we? But it's there. Let's do all we can to water that desire, to nurture it, to not give up on this greatest of projects, seeing the face of God in this life, knowing his will in the, this life with all of its mess. Perhaps think about a place where you spend a fair bit of your time, maybe when you're at work or college or wherever you are, when it's not the summer months, which perhaps are a bit different for you, a classroom, an office, workshop, wherever. Think of a place that you spend a lot of time in doing, let's call it secular things. Now clearly, this sort of dwelling in God's presence is not floating into those places with a mind completely detached from other people. That's no good to anyone. But what would it mean to be conscious of God there in that place? And what would it mean to go about your business in that place conscious of his presence and of his will. That is what David's talking about. Constant communion with his God. Refuge in the Lord. Relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, praying to the Lord. Verses 7 to 12, because of who God is, the psalmist is bold enough, enough to ask of him. And here we have direct prayer, the language of direct prayer in these verses. Verse 7, hear. Verse 11, teach. Verse 12, give me not. He's now praying. So first of all, hear me, he says in verse 7. We might ask, it sounds like he's kind of concerned about this communion being broken. Why? Is he not confident about it? I think it's because if you, if you really see God face to face and you know your own sin, then you know what it's like, don't you? You think, well, God, you're right to cast me off. That indicates a right view of God's holiness and our own sin. He knows that. He's 
totally dependent on God maintaining that relationship. Christian, you can do that with confidence through the cross. We might ask, why in verse 10 does he talk about his father and mother forsaking him? You can't really imagine his father Jesse and Mrs. Jesse abandoning him. Why why is he talking about this here? But I take it that he's making the point that parental love is always imperfect compared to God's love. However good parents are, they have their limitations. If you're a parent, you know that. If you're a child and you've had parents, you know that. So we all know that. The best of parents can keep giving and loving up to a point. Not because they don't want to, but because they're not there. They die. We have limitations that God does not have. And beyond that point, God's love steps in. He takes us in. The psalmist knows that. There's more stuff in verse 12 about um, enemies and false witnesses here. And um, it reminds us that the troubles of the psalmist are not only the normal troubles of life, they're also the troubles of the one who seeks to live faithfully for God. Christians today will not find life easier. You have the extra conflict of suddenly having an enemy who's prowling around, ready to take you down. As a Christian, you can't just go with the flow. Your conscience, your obedience to Christ won't allow it. And so on top of your normal troubles, you've got these extra ones as well. And that's, I think, what's going on in this psalm. In such a world, the psalmist says, hear me. Hear me. He continues in prayer in verse 11 and says, Teach me, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies. I think he's simply saying there, because of who you are, please keep shaping me, change me. Again, Christian, are you remembering that? You're not just called to give lip service, we're called to change. Daily repentance. Lead me on a level path, teach me your way. And I think that lead me on a level path has the sense of, Lord, I've got so much potential in life to go off to the right or the left, to make a wrong move. Lord, I don't want to. I don't want to for your glory and for my good. And also for non-Christians around me, I don't want to set that bad example. It won't show Christ, so lead me on a level path. Give me your grace for that. Hear me, teach me, protect me, verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Seems to be the Old Testament equivalent of that daily New Testament prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. So in this psalm, so far, what have we seen? The refuge in the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord that leads to prayer to the Lord. And then finally, in the last two verses the wait for the Lord. Because these things make it worth waiting for the Lord and waiting expectantly and patiently. And I think these verses really feel like the psalmist talking to himself almost under his breath. It's worth living like this. Hang in there. He's saying it to himself. He's saying it to us. I want to say it to you tonight. 
it's worth living like a Christian. Hang in there. It's worth it. Sometimes maybe you're waiting for a meal to come and be served. And it takes longer than you thought. But hopefully it's really good when it does come. And someone says, oh, it was worth the wait. It's really worth the wait. We had that sort of meal as a family a couple of weeks ago. Christian, it's going to be worth the wait. So wait. Hang in there. As long as it takes. Be encouraged. You will experience the goodness of God now. That's what he talks about in verse 13. But much lies ahead that is utterly certain, the return of Christ, the end of sin, the end of suffering. Wait, therefore, with confidence. We don't want to look back on our short time here, knowing that worry and fear just made us fail to obey with confidence. Our waiting can be a confident one, not just sort of battening down the hatches and waiting till, till it's all blown over but waiting with confidence. Christian, you're right to trust Christ. So be strong, as the psalmist says, and let your heart take courage. You're right to stand out on issues that are controversial in our day because of who he is and the fact that it's worth standing up for truth when everyone else says something else because he is and remains our light and salvation. It's likely that this psalm shows up something in us. The fact that we lack confidence sometimes in the right sense because we're putting it in the wrong place because we're trying to put confidence in ourselves, in my own wits and skills to get through life, keep my head down or whatever. But it's time to confess, isn't it? Time to come before God and say, forgive me for that. Put my confidence in you instead. Because the strange thing is that to gain this sort of confidence requires putting our own aside. That's what becoming a Christian is. Putting it aside, placing it in Christ, and waiting in the knowledge that Christ has lived this psalm for us and therefore makes it possible and its confidence possible for us as well. So coming back to Jesus, I just want to land on a, a quote from Christopher Ashe, who in this psalm, he looks at this psalm, just makes a comment about how we can have particular confidence because of how Christ has lived out this psalm. I quote, Our King Jesus Christ shared David's covenant confidence amidst yet deeper hostility, in other words, deeper than David's. For his foes advanced against him, and it was as if an army laid siege to his life, verses 2 and 3. They desired his death and used false witness to work violence, verse 12, against him. And yet Jesus did not fear, but trusted himself. To God. His one desire, utterly consistent and passionate, was for the presence and fellowship of the beautiful Father. And so he prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. 
he said to himself as he prayed this psalm, as Jesus certainly would have done, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And he says the same to us. As we pray this psalm with him, we share his troubles. We learn his confidence. We purify our desire for God. And we persevere in prayer for our final rescue. Hang in there. And let the fact that Jesus hung in there victoriously for our salvation keep you going, keep you hanging in there.